Welcome to See You Uncover. Our next guest is an author, lawyer, reality star, as well as a host and executive producer of the NAACP Image Award nominated podcast, Holding Court with Ebony K. Williams. Her latest book is Bet I'm Black, the good news about being black in America today. We are thrilled to have her on and learn a little bit more about who she is and her story. So we start with, can you give us a gist about your background and how you got started in business? Sure. So I am a lawyer by trade. Uh, so I started practicing law uh, around 23 years old. Traditional stuff, big firm at first, left that for um, a career as a public defender for a few years and then went back into private practice. So after about five or six years of practicing, uh, it dawned on me actually that I really wanted to um, spend some time expanding um, additional gifts, right? So love the law, still, you know, use my law license daily on my podcast, Holding Court, as well as my upcoming uh, judge show, Judge uh, Equal Justice with Judge Ebony K. Williams, which comes out this fall in syndication. But I knew that I also had a curiosity and really a gift for public speaking and messaging to broad-based audiences, which of course you public speaking as an attorney every day, a trial attorney. But there was just something around reaching a broader market and a broad, you know, essence of society, which comes through media, which comes through mass media, uh, comes through radio, comes through television, and now podcasting and writing, actually. So I've also written books. So I didn't know how I'd get there, but I knew I wanted to explore it. So I packed up and moved to Los Angeles, California, site essentially unseen, didn't know a soul, and restarted a brand new career as essentially a self-trained journalist, uh, just on the skills I learned uh, in my communications undergraduate program at Chapel Hill, and of course, what I learned in law school. And there was a whole bunch of stumbling, I can assure you of that, but long story cut very short, uh, after a few years of cutting my teeth in talk radio in LA and eventually on cable news in various segments, I ended up getting a full-time offer from CBS News, which brought me to New York City. Uh, that was 2014. And bada bing, bada boom, uh, you know, almost 10 years later, after stretches at Fox News, Fox Sports, Revolt uh, TV uh, with Sean Puff Daddy Combs. Now I'm uh, really pleased to be in the partnership with Byron Allen, who is a media mogul and also uh, just business titan with The Griot, with Ebony K. Williams, which is a daily news show that airs on cable and digital with a Black-centric focus. So I would just say, you know, between that and then, you know, my Holding Court podcast, which I own and uh, distribute with Warner Music Group, uh, you know, it's just really a really nice, you know, ecosystem of platforms and business entities uh, that allow me great flexibility, great financial freedom, uh, and also just frankly, as a woman and a black woman at that in this society, it's really a part of my emancipation and my freedom to be able to be in business ownership. You could see how that risk packing up, moving to California really paid off and you could see the reward. And I think that's admirable to do, move to a new city, start something new. And I think a lot of people should do that, follow your passion and lead with your gut, which you did. And it showed what sparked your passion, though, for law. Sure. Well, like a lot of people, and especially a lot of people of color, I've, I've had members of my family be wrongfully positioned, if not convicted, through the criminal justice system in the state. Beyond that, it's been very clear to me at an early age that there are a few professions that our society and really the world 
grant particular authority to as a woman and again a black woman growing up in the American South it was very clear my mother imparted onto me at a very un early age, that one of the best things I can do to empower myself for my own survival and protection is to go into a profession that society highly values, frankly. So we know that's medicine. We know that's engineering, uh, you know, academia and the law, a handful of the kind of top, top tier things we think about as well as, you know, finance and business. But with that said, obviously I talk a whole lot uh, and I've always been precocious and very curious and very confident in my vocal command and my intellectual curiosity from five years old until infinity. Teachers and advisors and mentors have always been like, that girl's got to be a lawyer. Um, so before I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, I think it was something that was projected onto me. And the more I looked out, you know, the titans of the civil rights movement, the titans of, you know, the women's rights movement and liberation. And of course, you know, what we still see right now, the LGBTQ plus, you know, navigating and championing uh, inside of courtrooms all across America. It just felt like a perfect marriage of my gifts and my skill set, oral advocate, but also my intellectual prowess as an intellectual. So, yeah. Looking back, was there like a career defining moment that you made in your 20s? And now knowing yeah. what you know now, would you do something different? I think you nailed it earlier, actually. It was me packing up and moving to L.A. at 20, uh, trying to think, I guess I was 26, 26, 27, maybe 27 years old. And it was very much a bet on myself move, a bet on black move, which I talk about in my latest book, Bet on Black, The Good News About Being Black in America, which is available everywhere and on Amazon. You know, it's one of those things where I recognize that that looks like insane and everybody in my life, <laughs> including very close friends, uh, you know, said, you know, Ebony, you're crazy to do that. You've got a great career uh, with a high six figure income. Everything's going your way. Why in the world would you risk it all, so to speak? But I had a reframing of that. It didn't feel particularly risky at all, especially at that time. I'm glad you framed your question around like the thing to do in the 20s. Uh, because you still have such a, a kind of reckless abandon at that stage in life that I think allows a lot of confidence and a lot of energy around doing things that, frankly, I'll be 40 in a couple of months. And I don't know that I would make the same choice today. You know, I don't know, I don't know that I would have the energy and the stamina and the capacity to go through all of the ups and downs that came with that pivot. I'm obviously very, very glad that I did it then because it really allowed me to build a career from the ground up that really nurtures my passions and my gifts, but also, you know, make, you know, way more money doing what I do now than I would be, you know, at some partner at some stuffy law firm. God bless the people that do do that. It is important work. It's just not how I, I wanted to spend my days, you know, and I recognize that really early on at, at Firm Life. And I think that's something I would recommend young people to really listen to that instinct, listen to that little voice. Uh, it's got to make sense and it's got to feel good at some point. Now, every day, well, no job is that, no career is that. But if every day feels like a struggle, if every day feels like unbearable, I think you got to look at that. And I think you got to be courageous enough to pay attention to that and get curious about other ways that you can financially provide for yourself that still make you feel good. Yeah. You want that fulfillment when you're working. In your book and interviews, you were very, always very candid about financial concerns that are on your mind in your early life decisions. How did that develop 
I think growing up with some level of poverty, again, being raised in, in the South, being a free lunch kid, a, you know, single mother raised me with no siblings. Uh, you know, there just was a, a level of, you know, seeing this woman. I mean, my mother was so imperative and influential in my relationship with money and entrepreneurship and business, right? She didn't have, you know, the luxury of a four-year college degree, and yet she went into business herself and she availed herself to trade schools and she built a very profitable business for herself eventually in cosmetology, then daycares, and then eventually tractor trailers and trucking, which as a woman uh, and a black woman in the South, that was very impressive at that time and still is. So I think that model of seeing that at an early age was really, really powerful. And then having our own you know, financial instability, knowing that for her, it meant working three jobs at one time at various points during her early days. And if she missed one day of work, maybe we don't eat that week in the same way, or maybe, you know, paying out sliding scales for dental care and all that. Like It just was very real. And so again, understanding that with financial security, it really was never uh, so much about the materialism. And I think in today's society, Instagram, everybody wants the bag and the coins and a million Birkins and Louboutins and all that stuff's great. But it, it's always really, for me, been about safety. You know, I think there's a real safety component when it comes to financial stability and success that I don't know that we talk enough about um, in mainstream society. Did you learn about financial literacy in schools as you went on in elementary or high school or well, was it more? Yeah. Uh, there was no financial literacy whatsoever. And I'll give her credit. My mother tried uh, to, with me, you know, doing all the things we t- take to the bank, opening me up, a, you know, checking account at an early age, you know, putting a, me in a credit card. And I still made a mess of it. I'm just gonna be totally honest. I still made a complete mess of it. Sky high credit card bills in college. And they, you know, they come on campus with the cute Chapel Hill card and great. And, you know, now you've got like a 50,000% interest rate and it's a mess. Right. And I, I also was, have been very transparent during my season on Real Housewives of New York that when I made that courageous leap to build a new career by moving to LA, I also simultaneously made some disastrous financial choices uh, around things that were required to invest in building that career from the ground up. And I say that that's not for everybody. You know, that level of financial stress, that level of one could argue financial irresponsibility. Um, what I was betting on was that I would be able to make it up on the back end. And once I built a career that was successful enough, I could essentially pay off those debts, pay down my student loans and pay myself back for the debt that I incurred. And I did. And it did work out like that for me. And God to be the glory, I just closed on, you know, a million dollar condo here in Manhattan uh, last summer. But it could have worked out differently. You know, I just want to be really honest about that. So, you know, the amount of discipline that it took for me to get my student loans back in, you know, a rehabilitated, um, positive payment, you know, structure for me to save 20% down on a million dollar property cash. That's a lot of discipline when you're coming out of six figure debt, you know, so that making it up on the back end thing can work. Let me be clear. I have done it. But the amount of enormous discipline it takes to dig yourself out of that type of financial hole cannot be overstated. Yeah, you're completely right. And I want to ask you something that you mentioned on The Real Housewives in New York. You said, I've had to work twice as hard for half as much, but now I'm coming for everything. What do you mean by that? 
Well, those in Black culture know exactly what I mean by that, Ashley. And essentially, it's something that most Black kids in America are taught or, or you know, said to, uh, and conditioned to believe from childhood. Twice as hard for half starting in the classroom, right? You're going to have to work twice as hard if you want to get that A. Why? Because there's, you know, societal systemic presumptions of academic inferiority when it comes to Black kids and especially Black boys, unfortunately. So that's where that starts from. But there's also like the female component. Too, right. The fact that and just started being able to access higher education uh, fairly recently, as we know. And now, you know, when I say I'm coming for everything, well, that's the best part of the statement. Right. Historically, it's twice as hard for half as much. Well, the half as much days are over as far as I am concerned. Um, society might still want to pay up half, but I, I'm unaccepting of that. I'm coming for every damn thing. So I'm coming for real estate. I'm coming for high yield investment accounts. I'm uh, coming for a franchise and business structures that, you know, help protect my wealth and investment. I'm coming for every tax advantage I can get. I'm coming for family. I am coming for love. I am coming for happiness. So that's what I mean when I say I'm coming for everything. As you should, as you should. What, in your opinion, do you think is the greatest challenge for women in starting out in the workforce? And do you have any advice to overcome that challenge? I think the biggest challenge is the thing we've been hearing about since the 1960s and 70s, you know, second era of women's rights and women. And that is this family work balance dynamic. The reality is women are going to school longer these days. We're getting masters and PhDs and doctorates, and it's amazing. And in the process, unless you're having very honest conversations with your physician and your family and potentially your partner or yourself, egg freezing, fertility preservation has to be a part of this. And even that, you know, at a top level, okay, I freeze my eggs and now I can have kids at 50. Not the case, you know, and now people are starting to even be more honest about that, Ashley. Nothing's a guarantee. Nothing's an absolute safety net and nothing's a real insurance policy. But it important. I froze eggs at 34. I wish I could have frozen them at 24. And I wish I had done two fertility uh, retrieval cycles. Uh, But now I sit here at 39 in the midst of my single motherhood journey. And I'm blessed to be able to even impart on this journey, largely because of my resources and my financial capacity and my, you know, social status. But you know, I'm not going to sit up here and pretend that this is not costly, not just the money part, but also Parenting, you know, in this way, parenting solo, parenting older, quite frankly, you know, what is my energy going to look like running around after a two year old at 42, 43 years old, uh, 44 years old even. So these things are blessings that they're even options and that it's available to me. And I'm so grateful to God for it. But this is a very different uh, motherhood model than the women of previous generations um, and even marriage looks like for, you know, young women and women today that are pursuing career and business at a whole different level than was ever possible for generations of women before us. So it's so exciting. It's all to me completely amazing. We just have to manage for the other aspects. That's all. This is not a deterrent. This is not, you know, hey, forget all this women's lip stuff, you know, go back to the kitchen, hell to the no. That is too defeating of our power. That is too limiting of our opportunities and options. But it is something that we have to, I think, as women, and especially women my age and older, need to start talking to younger women about more directly and honestly and lovingly 
Like, you know, sis, if you think marriage is going to be important to you, you, you do need to structure some of these career goals a little differently and create the space for what that partnership looks like, you know, at some point earlier in this process. It's really hard to do what me and a lot of women have done, right? Which is go hard in the paint, you know, stack a lot of cash, build these great careers and pop your head up at 40-ish and say, okay, now how do we do this family thing? Not impossible, but it, but it has different challenges. I wanted to ask you about your book, Bet on Black. If you could pick a key message or takeaway that you want readers to have, do you have one to give us today? Simply that Blackness from my lived experience, Ashley, and actually my academic as well, I actually have a degree from UNC Chapel Hill in Black Studies. And that's important to note just because this is a moment in American culture that uh, academic studies of Blackness is under siege, right? And that's happening politically um, all over the country. So I say that to say I've got an academic background in Blackness, and I have, of course, a lived experience being a Black woman in this country who has also had the benefit of global travel. So I've been Black in Rwanda and South Africa. I've been Black in Hong Kong. I've been Black in Shanghai. I've been Black in Israel. I've been Black in Switzerland, Paris, London, you name it. Um, And I'm really, really fortunate to have those experiences. And what all of that has taught me is that Blackness is the single most misunderstood social construct in the world. And it's especially misunderstood here in America in a sense that most people, even black people, oftentimes understanding of blackness as a construct is rooted in notions of inferiority, subordination, and sometimes this flat out inability, lacking of beauty, lacking of femininity, and lacking of a softness and a lacking of humanity. And the actuality of blackness is it is so abundant in the inverse of all of that. It's extremely brilliant and curious and really full of love and full of real hard work and things that are really, really germane to how we think of humanizing one or, ourselves and you know each other. And I'm really, really excited in this book to explore the actuality of the blackness to rid the mythology and the dark underbelly of where that anti-Black trope comes from and celebrate the good news about being Black in America. Do you have any plans on writing more books down the line in your future? As a writer, uh, you know, it's not something that I I map out. Um, Even this book, Bet on Black, came to me, you know, kind of over time. Um, My very first book, uh, which was really a a passion project and, and put out in a very small imprint, pretty powerful, Appearance, Substance, and Success, you know, that came out in 2017, Bet on Black hit the shelves early 2023. I think there's going to be some real interest in a young adult version of Bet on Black. I've traveled the country touring with this book, Ashley, and so many moms and fathers are just like, please, God, I need my 14-year-old to read this. I need my eight-year-old even to read it. And I've got a few too many four-letter words <laughs> in the adult version because uh, I wrote this book very much like I talk. I'm thinking the next step is going to be the, to do the modified version for young adults so they can really understand the actuality of their identity as Black people in this world and in this country at an early age, which makes it a lot easier. And that's a lot less regurgitating of negative narrative around oneself that they will mm. have to throw. Is there a person throughout your life that has been a role model or you've gone to for advice? Yeah, most of them are dead. And I, I say that... <laughs> with a little bluntness to it, because I think a lot of us have been raised to believe and and are taught to believe that role models are these executive types that we have to 
connect with on LinkedIn and set coffee dates and Zoom dates with. And that's really the model of, of mentoring. Most of my mentors, Ashley, are dead. This is one of my mentors right here in this book. This is James Baldwin. That's a mentor to me. This woman is a mentor to me. It's Harriet Tubman. So understanding her story and her lot in life. You know, Ida B. Wells is behind me. Um, some of the greatest people who I've learned from uh, are cited in my book, but on Black Frederick Douglass, Malcolm X, um, W.B. Du Bois has been really top of mind recently with my conversations in the culture around uh, striving for excellence and combating mediocrity. So, yeah, I've got a lot of great mentors and people that have guided my thinking and questioning of, of things and my intelligence. And most of them I've never met in my life. So I would just encourage young people to think beyond structure of like the mentor coffee date because so much mentorship can be gained from just reading what the ancestors have left behind. Has there been a tool or skill that has contributed to your success that you can think of? Well, I just named one reading. I, I, I know, you know, not so vogue these days, <laughs> but I, I can't, I mean, you see what's behind me. I just, and I reread a lot and I put this in the, in my book, Bet on Black, I think it's a mistake to read a text one time and put it on a shelf and, you know, go on about your business for eternity. Because who I am when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X at 22 is very different than who I am at 30. And I know that will be who I'll be at 42. Uh, also, uh, Sheryl Sandberg's lean in and, you know, hotly, you know, contested, lots of controversy. But there are some elements of that book, for me at least, that remain germane to this day. And I read the book for the first time when it first came out. It has to be close to 10 years now. And just the other day on my Grio show, I cited the book talking about the importance of Cyril Sandberg said it, Warren Buffett said it, somebody else important uh, said it, it's escaping me. But the point is, oh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it. The most important business decision, career decision you'll ever make in your life is who you marry. And the, the left out part is, and sometimes that means not marrying right? So, you know, that is something that, yeah, I read it at 32, but it rings totally different uh, at 40, almost 40. Mm -hmm. So if you could give a piece of advice to a teenage or college version of yourself, what would you tell her today? Consistency is more important than talent. I love that. I think, yeah, I think it's really easy, especially in an Instagram era, to get really caught up in the special people and the people with the gifts and the Magic Johnson and the Michael Jacksons and the Beyonce's and the whatever, you know, Adele's. And these people are enormously gifted. Um, and I believe we all have our gifts. But when you and I study everybody I just named, I study like insanely. I am literally rewatching uh, the Michael Jordan doc, The Last Dance, for like the fifth it's a time. Great documentary. <laughs> Yeah, great. Watch that. I study like old YouTube episodes of Oprah Winfrey's original daytime talk show to see her interview style, to see her line of questioning, to see her cadence. I watch Michael Jackson documentaries that Spike Lee has done over and over and over again, not to watch the performances, but to watch the rehearsals, to watch the mixing of the music. And I don't sing and I don't play basketball, but these are also mentors, Ashley, because these are the most consistent people at their craft. Um, and so I tell my young self and I would tell any young person, talent is amazing. It's actually very, very cheap. It's consistency that ultimately results in greatness. Ebony, thank you for coming on and sharing your stories. And I'm sure our viewers and young learners are going to love hearing about your book and you. And again, her book is out. It's 
phenomenal. I went to the book signing at Robert Brace's and I love learning more about it. So everyone, please check it out. And Ebony, thank you again. Thank you, Ashley. Have a great one.